Isaiah 47. Beginning at verse 1, we're going to read the first three verses, and then I'd like to pray and uh, get right into our study this evening. Isaiah 47, verses 1 through 3. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the, wa- the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will not arbitrate with a man. Shall we pray? Father, this evening we come to your word, desiring your wisdom and understanding. We pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we will rightly divide your word. That from it all, Lord God, we will grow in grace and knowledge and understanding in your truth. That we will also, in all of these words, prepare our hearts for the days in which we live. For indeed, Lord God, we have things that are happening in this world today in which men are trusting in men, but not trusting in you. And Lord, we want to be different from that. And we want to go in a different direction than what the world is going. We want to be right with you, Lord. And should anyone say that that is fear, that is exactly what it is. We want to fear you. For you are God, and there is no other. And we want to live in accordance with your word, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through the power of your Holy Spirit. And this we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago... A passenger in a railroad train was reading his Bible when a dapper-looking gentleman came along and he looked at at it and and he said, Oh, reading the Bible? Do you believe the Bible? I don't think that any educated people believe in the Bible anymore. You look like a cultured man and I'm surprised that you're reading that. I believe the day will soon come when people will no more believe the Bible than they believe in ghosts and witches like our forefathers. My friend, remarked the Bible-reading gentleman, when people reach the place where they do not believe in the Bible anymore, they believe in witches and ghosts again. I believe that is where we live today. That to get away from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and to, and to say, well, that's not relevant any longer and that's not really what's, what's happening in the world today. That's just old-fashioned or that's, you know, outdated or whatnot. 
And yet look at what people are doing because they're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and not trusting in the Word of God. What are they reading after? What are they going after? What's so fascinating today on TVs but shows about phenomena like ghosts? People running from the gospel, running to covens and witches. It's all happening today. And how true that has been in the past 150 years or so. How many have turned from the Word of God to spiritism, to theosophy and other occult systems that profess to have to do with the dead. It's another fascination, isn't it? The popularity of mediums and pop psychics has increased dramatically due to infomercials, internet, TV programs. There are people today who have their own programs that they, you know, they, they call up, you know, dead people and try to communicate for them, you know, on TV. And they try to look like you and, and me, you know. They're not like in times past where they used to wear robes and funny turbans on their head. Now they just look like us. And they say, well, you know, I'm just a normal person, but that's kind of like the gift that God gave me. My question always is, what God? What God is it? The reason I mention all of this now is that this is really all Babylonianism. Babylonianism at its best or worst come down through the centuries. In the first part of the book of Isaiah, we, we had drawn attention to the fact that Babylon was a very source of idolatry, sorcery, and enchantments. We might remember the cry from Isaiah 21, verse 9. It says, And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. And then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. In a section that points to the fact that God is greater than all of Israel's enemies, which is where we've been so far since chapter 45, and we're going on through the next chapter, chapter 48, we now focus our attention again on Babylon. The nation and city, as it were. And later in the chapter that we're looking at, we're going to be dealing with this very thing. The reason why God is judging them. And so we're going to see some disturbing warnings of judgment. And in chapter 46, we already saw how the Babylonian gods together weren't able to stop God's servant Cyrus. And so these judgments that we're going to look at tonight will apply in a few ways. Let's go over that tonight, first and foremost. First of all, the judgments are specifically to the nation of Babylon, which would conquer the world and mistreat the Jews, as we'll see again in just a moment. Secondly, they are aimed at a worldwide religious and commercial system that is opposed to God, a system that will present, that will be present, I should say, at the end, and will be judged when the Lord Jesus returns. There will be a religious and commercial system that will be labeled as Babylon. We'll see that in a moment. Thirdly, there are some principles presented in this chapter that we are to also be careful about. That is throughout the whole chapter, and I know that you'll know when we talk about them. At that time that Isaiah was receiving the prophecy from God and writing it down, 
Babylon was just coming into prominence and power. It wasn't the great power that it was going to be, but it was beginning to be. And there's something in the first three verses that we just read, and we'll read them again, that, that we see some sense of that uh, pure nature, not pure in the moral sense, but pure in the, in the sense of strength and, and, and stability. Notice it says, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the waters. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. Babylon is being portrayed here as a humiliated woman. A, pride, a, a proud queen that is now a humble slave. And you probably just know from reading stories or, you know, just kind of seeing stories on TV or whatever, that, that anyone who has been raised up in a very, you know, high, uh, proud, uh, royal kind of uh, situation, if ever brought down to the ground, just don't know how to handle it. They, they're humbled. But it's more than being humbled, it's humiliation. And that is really what is being given here as a, as, as a picture. Uh, the picture given here is one that shows her. Babylon, we'll be speaking of Babylon all night, so that's when it says her or she, it's about Babylon. But, but the picture given here is, that, is one that shows her stripped of her fine clothing, made to march in a forced relocation. Do you notice there in verse 2? They're beginning, you know, you, 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 you won't be called tender and delicate anymore. Going into verse 3. You know, but after all that, that she is made to sit in the dust and act that depicted great mourning. She's no longer in her high place. Now she's brought down to the dust. Babylon was referred to as a virgin. Not because of her moral excellence and pure qualities, but because she had never been defeated. Never been conquered. Never been captured by her enemies. But the image gives given shows her defeated and humiliated. Now remember, this is going to happen almost 150 years later. But the prophecy is coming from the Lord. That this is what's going to happen to this particular nation called Babylon. And here it is important to point out that sin will always lead to slavery. Sin will always lead to slavery. We, we can't get it into our thoughts, we can't get it into our mind or into our hearts that if we just sin a little bit, it's not going to really do any damage. God doesn't distinguish between little sins and bad sins. Sin is sin. And sin is what separates us from God. Until Jesus Christ comes, you see, and sets us free. But sin will always lead to slavery. Sin will always lead to bondage. Turn to Romans chapter 6 for just a moment. And in Romans 6, verses 60 through 19, notice what it says. Paul says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? You see the picture that he's drawing here. 
that if you present yourselves as slaves to obey, whether you are a slave of one to obey that leads to sin, which will eventually lead to death, you could also be a, a slave of obedience to one who will lead you to righteousness. In verse 17 he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. I think this is a tremendous passage that Paul writes to the church because it, it, it kind of erases all of the, the lines that we try to draw for a kind of a, a safe no man's land with God, you know. You know, there's sin leading to death, there's, there's righteousness, but we want to kind of be in the middle. But you know, there's no middle here. You can't erase that middle. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of Christ. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. I'm sorry, I'm pointing this way for you guys, slave of sin. These are not the slaves of sin over here. I hope not, anyway. So, you understand that... When we become slaves of sin, we are obedient to those things. Obedient, you know, the, we, we begin to become obedient to the things that are drawing us away from Christ, drawing us more into the things that bind us even more. That's very general, but I think you all can understand. And he says, present yourselves as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And the Bible tells us, and even as Christians, we're told by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 that we are to be holy just as God is holy, just because he quotes from the Old Testament. Be ye holy, for I am holy, God says. Holiness is, some, holiness is not a suggestion given to Christians. Holiness is a command. So we find out later in chapter 47 why the judgment would take place. Why this judgment is going to come upon Babylon. Well, Babylon would be a kingdom given to arrogance, pride, and pleasures. Verses 7 and 8, we'll get there in just a moment. And trusting in all kinds of wickedness while never trusting in God. Verses 9 and following. But getting back to the images of nakedness here in verses 2 and 3, they're not meant, these images are not meant to give an impression of sensuality as much as they reveal the hardness and the vulnerability of a once virgin daughter now subjected to difficult labor and horrid abuses by captors. Now defenseless, they no longer worry about dress or even modesty. That is the picture that is being given here. You see, this, this ideal that is, that is being spread around uh, our, our, our culture and our society today you know, about nakedness, you know, that it's okay, it's all right. You know, if a person desires that they want, you know, to be that way, well, you know, so be it. I mean, you know, that's the problem with, with the Internet. That's the problem with pornography. That's the problem with all of these things that, that get men, you know, into these crazy, wild ways of, uh, about them because they see someone that's, that's, that's unclothed. And, you know, uh, we might think, well, and it's just all around us. But you know what? We have to turn from it. We have to turn from it. Because the Bible tells it like it is. It says it's a shame. It's a shame. 
And notice what the consequence is to them. They're not enjoying that. They're not trying to do this out of shame. They're being held, they're going to be held as captor, as captives by captors who are not going to treat them any good, any better than they treated the Jews. And folks, that's part of the problem. How they treated God's people when God had used them to certainly to put them into some sense of, of, of uh, discipline, some sense of chastisement, some sense of punishment. Because they had been rebellious against their own God. But you see now the, 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 the way that it's coming back upon Babylon. Or it's going to eventually come back upon Babylon for the way they treated God's people. Now he's drawing the picture of them being defenseless. And, and they, you know, they're worried of, you know, when you're out there doing all the things that they're telling you to do as far as being captors, you know, in, in, out in, in, in the desert moving from one place to another. You know, taking millstones, grinding meal, and all of that. Don't care what you look like. But it's still a shame. And he is saying that he will impose humiliation on Babylon, just as Babylon imposed that same humiliation upon Judah and Jerusalem. And he isn't going to be talked out of his exacting judgment. He's not going to be talked out of it. That's why he says at the end of that phrase in verse 3, I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate. Well, man, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with anybody about it. I'm just going to do it. See, and God can do that because he's God. He's not going to be talked out of this judgment. This is one judgment that is going to be sure. You know how it was at times when the, the children of Israel going through, through the, the wilderness and, and, you know, they're acting foolish and they're doing all kinds of things and Moses goes and intervenes for them, you know. And God listens to His servant Moses. But not in this case. There's no one that can intervene for Babylon. God is going to exact his judgment, and he's not going to argue with anybody about it. I want you to consider in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, what it says about vengeance being God's and God's alone. It says, vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. So whenever God acts... As one who, who is, is, is to bring forth vengeance, he's going to do it. In Romans chapter 12, moving on into the New Testament, where this particular verse is used again, in Deuteronomy passage here, Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, Paul says, Repay no one for evil, or I'm sorry, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. But rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is what God has commanded us to do. But it is God who is going to be the one who brings vengeance when the time comes. Not us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, again, we find this quoted. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing. And I, I believe this last part of verse 31 is important, or the whole of verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the church is, is encouraged, you know, okay, you know, vengeance is not us, it's not ours, it's God's. But we're commanded to be like Christ. God will take care of those who have 
wounded or has, or has attacked or done anything to his people. God will take care of that. We are called to be like Jesus. And we should fear the Lord. And I, and I tell you, we should fear the Lord more now than ever before. And that is because he is coming again and he's coming quickly and he's coming soon. We are so much more close to the coming of Jesus Christ now than ever before. Obviously. <laughs> we're still living, we're still moving. Time-wise into, into the, the end times because we're in the end times. And we ought to know that. We ought to realize that. We, we should not be uh, prophetically illiterate. We need to be awakened to the very fact that everything that's happening today, I bet you some of you have already seen the news. You know what's happened in the news. What's happened with, with uh, the president of Russia, Putin, Rutin Tutin Putin, who's gone over there to see Ahmadinejad in Iran. You've read that. You've heard about it. You've heard the threats now. There are threats coming to the United States and Israel. Well, guess what? If you will just put that aside for just a moment and read Ezekiel 38, notice who's getting together. Who the Lord said 3,000 years ago who was getting together. Very same people. It's happening now. Are we not closer to when Jesus is coming? We better be ready. What are we doing messing around? We're thinking like the world's going to last as long as, as we're around. You know, everything's going to be fine and dandy. It's not. Things are happening. I was listening to somebody from Israel on a, on a uh, uh, recorded message that I, that I heard. Came over here to the States. Uh, he's a tour guide over there, but he's very well uh, versed in what's going on and uh, politics in Israel and politics here. And, and, and uh, you know, he keeps bringing up, you know, the, 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 what I just mentioned. Uh, it, it, his uh, message was right before this particular meeting between these two heads of state and, and, and all. But nonetheless, it, it's still all working toward, uh, you know, this, this completion. But but he also mentioned Syria and Damascus and mentioned about Israel. And I know that not too long ago, back in September, so you may have been reading, you knew that Israel went into, into Syrian, the Syrian desert and destroyed some stuff over there that they, they shouldn't have had. They were built, built by the Russians, supplied by North Korea. It was happening. And Iran was tied into all of that too. It's all in the scriptures though. It isn't so much that the newspaper supporting the, the Bible, the Bible is supporting what's being written today. Because that came first. Anyway, I wasn't going to go into prophecy. The fact of the matter is, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and it's best for us to be right with God today. Because tomorrow could be the day. You see. And so Isaiah now interjects a word of praise at the fact that the Lord will take vengeance on Israel's enemy, boasting in His Redeemer. Notice verse 4. kind of just sticks out of everything else that we've been reading. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. That's a tremendous phrase, the Holy One of Israel. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. In other words, the Lord of the armies of heaven is His name. 
And in this statement of praise, the prophet shows that the Lord's purpose in inflicting punishment on the Babylonians is essentially for the salvation of His people as the Lord had spoken to them previously. Go back to chapter 41 in verse 14. What does it say? Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. God is trying to make it very clear that He is going to be the one who is going to bring salvation to His own people. And we need to consider the names that are given to God in this particular verse. We don't want to skip over it so quickly, but we don't want to take too much time with it either. But in your own time, look up the name Redeemer. Look up the word or the phrase, the Lord of hosts. Look up the Holy One of Israel. See how often it's used and why it's used. But the beautiful name of Redeemer or the title of Redeemer is is one that we ourselves can give thanks to God for. Because are we able to say with Job when he says in Job 19 verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Now we're talking about somebody in way, way back in time that is already saying, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. That's saying, I'm looking all the way down toward the very end of time. I'm, he's, he's near the beginning of this, this particular earthly time. And he's looking all the way through and he says, my Redeemer is going to stand at the last day. We have a Redeemer that's never going to be, not be our Redeemer. He's going to be the Redeemer of all those who trust in Him. Are we able to say with a psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Are we able to say that tonight? Because it's a tremendous title to give to God. You are the one who, re, who redeems us, who buys us back from where we had been in that slavery of sin and death, in that slavery to the enemy. You have bought us back. You've redeemed us. And you did so with a great price. The blood of your only begotten Son. He is our Redeemer. Jesus is our Redeemer because He paid for us Himself. He's our Redeemer. And now we have the reasons that God will humble Babylon. He says to them, sit in silence. And go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, of course, being the Babylonians themselves. For you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. Notice carefully what he's saying. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. Now he's speaking to Babylon. He says, I've given my people into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily. And you said, I shall be a lady forever. So that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. How interesting that God will use nations to chastise His people. But He also looks at how they treat His people. When you think about what will take place much later on when Cyrus does come and 
conquer Babylon. And he comes with that attitude of taking certainly the, the treasures of Babylon and all for himself, but yet at the same time, he begins to do what God called him to do, which was to bring his people back into the land, to help them build the city of Jerusalem, to help them rebuild the temple, all of that, you see. But the Babylonians took God's people and showed them no mercy exacted great punishment upon them, especially the older people. And so this is again the queen's sentence being read to her. The queen who says, I'll be a queen, a lady forever. She's to sit not on a throne, but on the ground, as in verse 1. She's to sit in silence in contrast to the royal word of command she was used to proclaiming. Queens don't sit around and just be silent. You know, they have power and authority to give as well as kings. She thought she had conquered Judah and Jerusalem by her own power and might. And this is where she begins her descent. Because she never saw that she was an instrument of God's word because he was angry with his people. Babylon abused that power and authority and took advantage of the Jews, never showing them mercy, never sparing even the feeble and the old but weighing them down heavily. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. It is one of the minor prophets. Doesn't mean he went to UTEP. Minor, M-I-N-O-R. Just a smaller book, not that it's less in, in, in impact than the greater prophets. But Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 Listen to what it says. God says, For for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense ascribing this power to his God. That's a tremendous statement. Almost as if to say they know some sense of what they're doing when they go and, 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 and take, for example, Judah and Jerusalem. But rather than really look to the one who has assigned them this particular task, it says his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense by ascribing the power to his God. So Babylon's pride is, is seen clearly then. If we go back to our text, it's seen clearly in verse 7 as, as she boasts presumptuously of being a lady forever. Pride and presumption can lead to abuse of authority, which even the church should be careful to avoid at all costs. This is an awakening to the church as well to avoid pride and presumption. 
As history has recorded some dark times such as the the Crusades and the Inquisition. I know we can argue some of the reasons why the Crusades took place and whatnot and so forth and all. But uh, the Inquisition... A church that rules by execution. Exacting torture is not the church of Jesus Christ. Not the church of Jesus Christ. There were men and women burned at the stake done terrible things to in these times. And while that was happening, those who were being burned or being tortured and, and, and taken to their deaths, all of them cried out and said to you, Lord, be the glory for this. The punishment came from a so-called church. But the Bible gives us the proper standard. What is the proper standard? What are we to be as the church? We could take it today that we can, we, we can have uh, certain institutions that build themselves up into mega churches of some sort or another and have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming Develop a theology based on something that might be considered just a verse or two. But then they have some sense of power and pride and presumption that we are the way we are because, well, we are God's chosen. Folks, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, Bondservants... Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. And you masters do the same thing to them. Give up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. And how many other passages of Scripture that deal with the humility of the believer in Jesus Christ? To serve rather than to be served. To humble ourselves as we sang tonight. To humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord for he will lift us up. I love what the Apostle Paul says when he says we have nothing to boast in except the cross of Jesus Christ. We have nothing to boast in of ourselves except the cross of Jesus Christ. Can you boast in the cross of Jesus Christ? What would it mean to boast in that cross? But to know that not one of us went to that cross to die for the sins of men except Jesus. 
who died for us and shed his blood for our forgiveness. That's what we boast in. We boast in the work of someone else, not of us. We boast in the work of Jesus. What follows in the next portion of our text is God's rebuke of Babylon and the reason for their sudden humiliation. Let's look at verses 8 through 11. Therefore, hear this now. You who are given to pleasures. Let me ask you a question. Do we live in a time where pleasures are desired of many people today? How often do we get those things in the mail or in faxes or in emails, you know? Press right here and you'll win a free trip to the Hawaiian Islands or to the Bahamas or to Cancun. I know it's not pronounced like that, Cancun, but, you know, Cancun. All these things, you know, that go out there trying to get us to pleasure, you know. The commercials, man. Oh, you know. We got into these ruts, you know. Can I, can I, can I interject one more time something? I, I think that the enemy knows how to work us. Well, he knows how to work people. <clears throat> but we have a better strategy if we'll do one thing. If everything that we do, from the time we arise to the time that we go to bed, if everything that we do will be to the glory of Jesus Christ and the glory of our God, no matter what it is, no matter how difficult it might be, but everything is to Him, to God be the glory, great things as He does. Listen, when we do that, that's our pleasure. That's the pleasure of the believer in Jesus Christ. And all these other things are just, it's just fluff, you know. There's greater satisfaction in knowing Jesus. I'm not saying it's bad to travel. I'm not saying it's bad to go here or there, or it's wrong, or it's a sin. No, it's not. But again, be a, be a careful observer of what they go after. The pleasure syndrome, you see. Theologians have always worked, you know, they've always worked through this problem of what's worse, pain or pleasure? To the Christian. C.S. Lewis, you know, dealt with the issue of pain, but, but he also came to the conclusion that many times pleasure's a worse thing. Because it blinds us to our service to Christ. Pain brings us to Christ. Well, anyway. So, hear this now. You who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. Listen, have we heard that before somewhere? Okay. This... Babylon is saying, I am, and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as widow, nor shall, I lose, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries. Here's the reason. Your sorceries for that great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. 
Therefore evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. And trouble shall fall upon you. You will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. The first thing to notice. The first thing to notice is the notion that she considers herself so self-sufficient and doesn't need to acknowledge the claims or even the existence of anyone or anything other than herself. I am and there is no one else besides me. But you see, this is flying in the face of one true authority who's already pronounced this and pronounced it previously and pronounced it rightly and pronounced it truly. Isaiah 43 verse 11. What did God say? I, even I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44 verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Isaiah 45 verses 5 and 6 and this is the key verse. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And let's add Isaiah 46 verse 9, which we saw last week. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. That's already been said. What is Babylon saying? Oh, listen, I'm... I am. What What do you say when you say I am? You're saying you're God. What did, Jesus, what, what did God say from the burning bush to Moses? When Moses asked the question, well, what name should I give him of, of, of this God? He says, I am. Tell him I am sent you. I am that I am. That's saying you're God. What did Jesus say that got people so riled up? He said, before Abraham was, I am. When they came to take him from the garden before he was to be uh, uh, judged and tried and then executed, crucified. They came into the garden with all kinds of lanterns and whatnot. Spears and swords. To get one man. Are you who we're looking for? He said, I am. And when Jesus said that, all those that were out in front fell back. Because he said, I am. And what is Babylon thinking? I am, and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow. I'll never be a widow. I'm going to be a conquering, and, you know, as, 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 as this queen, you know, and nor shall I know the loss of children, the loss of my people, the loss of my armies, the loss of, of my servants. God says, well, in a moment, in one day, all that's going to happen, those two things. So the first thing we notice is that she considers herself so self-sufficient. She doesn't need to acknowledge it existence of anyone or anything else. The second thing to notice is that in direct opposition to what she expects, both widowhood and loss of children strike her vehemently, and that suddenly, just as I said. Consider, if you will, the boast of this Babylon found in another passage of Scripture. I want you to go all the way to the book of Revelation now. Here we're going to find another Babylon. The future Babylon, as it were. 
But nonetheless, listen to what it says here, Revelation 18, verses 7 and 8. It says, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. What is she saying? Exactly what we just read in Isaiah 47. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day. What does it say about her widowhood and her loss of children? One day. What does it say here in Revelation, thousands of years later? Their plagues, her plagues will come in one day, death, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. Strong is the Lord God. Who judges her. It is important to remember that Isaiah 47 was partially fulfilled through the fall of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to the Persians, but its destruction came over time. It wasn't immediate, so it was a partial fulfillment. The far fulfillment, the later fulfillment, is described here in Revelation 18, yet to come. When it happens, it happens swift and it happens suddenly. So now we still look at something yet to happen to a place and a people and a system of religion and commerce called Babylon. Thirdly, judgment would also come due to the multitude of sorceries and enchantments upon which she trusted. But neither her idols nor her occult practices would be able to warn her or prepare her for her destruction. Babylon trusted in her wickedness. Listen, today people are trusting in their wickedness. They're not trusting in God. They're trusting in their wickednesses, whatever it may be. Babylon was proud of her wisdom and knowledge. Now, we could take a moment and say, well, you know, if you do look back in history, well, they, you know, they had mathematicians. They had all kinds of things that they did to kind of advance into, into history and to kind of help civilization out a little bit. And, you know, we could say, well, this, this thing came from the Babylonians and whatnot. But, folks, they were proud of their wisdom. They were proud of their knowledge. And had perfected a form of religion, which we know today as astrology. They had perfected this form of religion which enhanced her sense of power over her own destiny without making any moral demands on her. And that is the way people are needing to see astrology today. It is a religion. It isn't just a section in the newspaper to kind of check to see how you're doing. And whether you should go out the door in the morning or not. Oh, it's going to be a bad day for you. I'm staying under the covers. Well, who knows if something from the, uh, you know, from an airline, you know, comes out of the plane and falls on your house when you should have been at work. So I don't know. But the fact of the matter is that's the way people are trying to live their lives. They're not, they're not looking in, in, into their, their moral demands, you know, on their lives. They're just looking for their own lives, you know. They got this thing about, you know, well, what's your sign? Well, what's your sign? Well, what's your sign? Well, did you know if this moon lights up with a star over here and this is going to happen to you? What kind of garbage is this? And you're beginning to trust in all of these things. You'd rather trust in this little article in the newspaper than trust in the living God. People are doing that. Astrology you know, is a false religion, folks. It is a false religion and you need to give it up. And I'll tell you what, if people start asking you about signs, tell them, I've got a sign for you. I've got an empty cross and an empty tomb. Those are my signs. I don't think about all this other stuff. But, you know, those are, you know what, what, is, what, is, what is all this about signs? What's your sign? I don't know, a stop sign. I like stop signs. 
What's your sign? I don't know. It's crazy. You know, a few people in history boasted of their own astrologers. Adolf Hitler was one. He had his own astrologer. He didn't like to do things until he consulted with his astrologer. He was very much, by the way, he was very much into the occult. If you do any study on the person of Adolf Hitler, you realize that he not only was into the occult, he was a man that was possessed by the devil. You do enough research, you realize he was a man who was possessed by the devil. And all you have to do is look at what he did. All you have to do is see how he, that little Austrian man who had, who had nothing whatsoever to do with, with, with any Aryan features whatsoever, which he, you know, and this is how he blinded a people. Can you imagine? You're blinding the, the German people into thinking that they had this, you know, this Aryan cause and all. And here's this little dark-haired Austrian who some say he might have even had some Jewish blood in him. Go and devise a plan to eliminate all Jews from the face of the earth. And he got to almost seven million that he killed. Yes, he did. In the Holocaust. Don't believe that other little guy in Iran who says the Holocaust never happened. You see, if you believe that, and you'll believe anything. But as the Babylonians, and I've got to hurry here, but as the Babylonian people are, uh, you know, uh, they were a people that were warped by this kind of wisdom and knowledge. And, when, and then when they think that all is safe and no one sees them, because, you know, that's one of the things they say, well, well no one sees us. Because what they're saying is nobody is around who, to see them because they can do whatever they want. They'll realize the Almighty God does see them, and immediately they will be brought low. I want you to listen to the words of these Proverbs. Uh, this is in the book of Proverbs, but there are three that run quite together here, that are actually four that, that run together in thought. And it says, For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. This is uh, Proverbs 3.32, by the way. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. That describes the contrast here between Babylon and God's people. And out of verse 34, where it says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. James takes that in his letter, in James 4, 6, and he says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter takes the same words from that particular proverb in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, and he says, Likewise, you young people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so, that's not just a Babylon. Anybody who exalts himself, anybody who, who arrogantly exalts himself above every, anyone else, in any way, shape, or form. I heard a song today. I, I, I think it was Casting Crowns. I heard a lot of songs today. But I think one of their songs, they talk about prophets in Armani suits. That, that line really got to me. Prophets in Armani suits. What is that saying to you? 
Lastly comes a challenge. A challenge to the astrologers and the sorcerers of Babylon. Let's look at verses 12 through 15, the last four verses here. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries, in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. This is irony. (laughs) This is irony. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be a stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they they be with you. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter. No one shall save you. That's the bottom line. You think these stargazers are going to save you? Well, go for it. Maybe they'll profit, but I'll tell you this, they won't. No one will save you if you continue to trust in these things. I mean, there's that certain sense of irony in the words of the prophet as he urges Babylon to keep practicing her magic arts in their hour of crisis, knowing that it wouldn't help. This was God challenging the sorcerers of Babylon to save them from His judgment. After all, aren't they the ones with spiritual power? Those magic arts? Those sorceries? The fact is, their weakness in the face of this judgment would be revealed for what it really was. It was just a bunch of hocus-pocus. What they really did in effect was take all fear of God away from people's hearts by attributing everything to the stars so that nothing is left to the providence of God. That's what happens with false religions. That's what happens with false prognosticators, false prophets, false stargazing false ways of doing things. What they do is they take all fear of God away from people's hearts. People start trusting in those magazines, you know, those national inquirers and stuff, and believing it too, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, they wonder, well, what's going to happen when things do begin to warm up in this world? Is it any wonder that the Lord kindles indignation against Babylon and says they shall be a stubble that is quickly consumed? They're going to be so consumed and so quick that they're they're not even going to be able to warm a a fire up, you know, man. They're just going to be dust. None of those skills would help when the time came. Rather than offer help, the astrologers themselves would be destroyed by the coming judgment and, and wouldn't be able to save their own lives, much less anyone else. So it will be when they wander about in error, you see. It says there is no one that can save you. What a way to end a chapter, isn't it? What a way to end a chapter tonight. There was no one that can save you. No one shall save you. Aren't you glad that the Lord's talking to the Babylonians and not to us tonight? There is a Savior, by the way. And there is salvation. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And there is salvation through Him. The Bible tells us very clearly. And we need to trust in Him. 
John chapter 1 verses 11 through 13 says, He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How clear it is in John chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus, Savior, Friend. Jesus, Redeemer. Romans 6, verses 20-23, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, Savior. Redeemer, friend, salvation to as many as believe, to as many as receive Him, to them He gives the right, the privilege to become sons of God, to as many as believe in His name. Paul in Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7 says, For we ourselves were once also foolish Can you look at your testimony tonight up there? Can you look at it and see it? All of us? For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's our testimony, isn't it? To some degree, it is all of our testimonies. But in verse 4 it says, But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Did you notice in verse 4 He calls calls it the love of God our Savior? And here in verse 6 He says, Uh, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's one Savior, Jesus Christ, and He's God in the flesh. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I, I want to close with these words from an old hymn that says, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it. White as snow. Oh, what a, what a wonderful hymn. If we will not find our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we will not look to Him to be saved, then certainly no one shall save you. But Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You see, the saved person is a person who rests in Jesus' finished work. A saved person is the person who rests in the, sa- in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When we were not saved, when we were in the world, we were restless in our hearts. 
We've known people that have found their satisfaction in the world, never came out of the world. Where are they today if they have died? Without Christ, they are separated from God forever. We were restless until we found our rest in Jesus. That's how great of a Savior He is. That He changes everything about us. He gives us a new mind, a new heart, a new spirit, a new way of doing things, a new way of living. And yes, in the midst of all this craziness and this wickedness in this world, we can stand and we can say, Thank you, Lord, because you have made me different from what I was. And had I died before I came to know you, I would be today in hell, separated from you. And that hell wasn't made for us. It was made for the devil and his angels. But God says, I've got a better plan. I'll give you my son. Have you received Jesus Christ? Because if you haven't, and you continue to live without looking for salvation in Jesus, then certainly no one shall save you. Come to Christ. He will be your friend. But He will first be your Lord. And He will be your Savior. Let's pray.